Father God, thank you for the words of that song that remind us that your promises are sure, that we can stand with confidence on your word and the things that it says about how life really is. Father, we pray this morning as we come to this passage, um, which is so rich in truth and meaning, we pray that you would give us eyes to listen carefully and to see what it is that you're saying to us, that we would be people who truly stand with confidence on the promises of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great, do keep that passage open. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, as we've been considering this letter to the Corinthians over the past few weeks, I don't know if you've been with us every week or this is your first Sunday um, with us. We've, we've seen that Paul is writing, the apostle who penned this letter, to a church who are wavering in their trust of him. There seems to be big sources of doubt that Paul has to deal with, um, primarily, it seems, coming from uh, critics who are among and in the Corinthian church who are seeking to undermine the things that Paul has been saying. Critics have been questioning all kinds of things about Paul, and those things seem to have been trickling down and affecting the Corinthians' confidence in the message of the gospel that Paul had brought to them. So I don't know if you remember um, some of the issues that we've dealt with over the past few weeks, but uh, critics have been questioning Paul's authority to be a pastor, to be a minister of the gospel. They've been questioning his abilities his failings, apparently his inadequacies as a preacher, as an orator. They've been questioning his message, as Dan reminded us. We saw last week that Paul spoke at great lengths about the power of his message, despite the fact that it often looks weak and people don't want to listen. So there's all kinds of questions that people, you can imagine the Corinthian church, might have about Paul as an apostle, but therefore about his message, the gospel. And this morning we come to, I think, a further question mark which seems to be hanging over Paul and his ministry, which is that Paul seemed to experience an inordinate amount of physical suffering as an apostle. There's all kinds of ways in which he's already talked about that in the letter. You might have remembered uh, he, he's spoken of anguish, he's spoken of tears. Um, if you want to flick over to chapter 11 um, and verse 25, or do that this afternoon um, if you have a spare five minutes, he actually lists specifically all kinds of afflictions and sufferings that came his way through the course of his life as an apostle. I summarise them. He talks about multiple beatings as a, a result of um, persecution, beaten with whips, with rods. He talks about being stoned. He talks about being imprisoned. He talks about the fact that he was shipwrecked apparently three times as he traveled around doing his ministry, spending days and nights at sea. He says he was in danger from rivers. He was in danger from robbers. He was in danger from Jews, from Gentiles. He was in danger, he says, in the city, in the country. He says he suffers lack of sleep. He suffers lack of food, cold, exposure, anxiety. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, Paul's life, if we're being honest, as we read this letter and as we know about him through other parts of the Bible, like, like the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's life was a walking disaster zone. 
I mean, three times shipwrecked. Talk about wrong place, wrong time. You can imagine, therefore, how some of the doubts about Paul's ministry might have been going in the Corinthian church, can't you? How can a life so plagued by affliction and suffering be a credible example of what empowered gospel living looks like? Because that's what Paul's been talking about, isn't it? If you remember. Paul's been talking about the glory of the new covenant that he's been preaching to the Corinthians. He's been talking about the power of the message of Jesus. He's been talking about the promise of real life if you trust Jesus and his gospel. And yet Paul's experience of life seemed to be anything but triumphant and glorious and empowered, didn't it? Three times shipwrecks. And so it begs this question, which is what we're looking at this morning... How did Paul square his experience of suffering and affliction with the power of the gospel message that he preached? Or more broadly, maybe more applicably for us, how does anyone keep following Jesus in the face of affliction and suffering? And it's something we need to think about this morning. I think wherever we're kind of coming from um, in terms of the Christian faith. If, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're visiting, maybe if you're investigating these kind of things, this is an important question, isn't it? Because why would you want to build your life on something that can't deal with the problem of pain and suffering in your life, that doesn't have an answer of how to deal with those things? And if we are Christians here this morning, as I take it lots of us are, This is equally an important question, isn't it? Can we really live confident lives, trusting Jesus, when suffering and affliction, when hardship and pain come into our lives and threaten to derail us? Well, Paul is going to show us that there is something that makes all the difference in his life, and it should in ours. And the answer to that is in verse 14. Look down at it with me, the beginning of the passage that we read. Paul says, we know that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Paul says the thing that keeps him going, despite the fact that his life is a walking disaster zone, is resurrection hope. I'm not sure what you think about when you hear that term resurrection. Um, I'll be honest, I don't think we probably think about it enough, if I'm honest, as Christians. I know I don't. Perhaps at Easter, it kind of gets a bit of an airing, doesn't it? But when you read the New Testament, um, it's striking how often the writers emphasize not just the cross and what it is achieving, but the central fulfillment of the cross in the Sunday morning resurrection of Jesus. It's not just the the add-on to the cross and all that Jesus was doing that stands at the heart of the Christian faith. In the New Testament, the resurrection is the completion of all the rich theology and meaning that is bound up in the cross event. And Paul says here, resurrection hope is central to living an empowered Christian life in the face of suffering and hardship. As another sidebar, I'm also aware, um, just even starting to talk about the resurrection, if if you're here and and you're investigating Christian things, might sound incredibly alien and unbelievable. 
And can I apologize, we don't have time this morning to explain in detail all the historical evidence as to why the resurrection stands as the credible proof of the truth of the Christian faith. If you would like to talk about that, please come and grab me afterwards. But if you do think that, I hope you'll bear with us this morning and just see why, if the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith, it matters so much to everything that Christians believe. Because look at Paul's logic in verse 14. Paul's logic is that the fact of Jesus' resurrection in history gives him confidence of his future resurrection waiting for him. And as we'll see for Paul, resurrection hope totally transforms everything that he experiences in his life, even hardship and suffering. And we're going to see that in at least three ways, and they'll come up on the PowerPoint as I explain them. Paul says he does not lose heart in the face of affliction and suffering because resurrection hope means there's something to look at, there's something to long for, and there's therefore something to live for. So let's dive into the the heart of this passage. Firstly, Paul looks to the unseen reality of resurrection life. A few weeks ago, I had um, a bit of an epiphany um, when Susie and I were visiting some friends um, over in Essex. We were visiting friends who have two young children. And on a rainy Saturday, we took the children to Jump Evolution. I don't know if you've come across Jump Evolution. Um, It is a magical place (laughs) because it's a trampoline park. And that means that in Jump Evolution, the walls are trampolines. The floors are trampolines. The things you climb on and jump off are all in some way based around trampolines. And if you're a child, Jump Evolution is a magical place. If you're a child. (laughs) And you see, the thing is that when we arrived, the inner child in me took over and I launched myself with gusto onto the walls and the floors, all made of trampolines. But of course, it wasn't long, about 10 minutes in fact, before I was hobbling humbly back to the cafe area having pulled all kinds of muscles that I didn't even know I had in my neck and my back and my arms. And I remember thinking, I'm not as young as I used to be. (laughs) Can I encourage you, if you need reminding of your human frailty, jump evolution (laughs) is a great destination. But you see, Paul starts by reminding us of that very same reality, actually. If you look down at verse 16, what does he say? I think this is the heart of the passage. It's worth reading again. Verse 16, therefore, he says, in the face of suffering and affliction, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That word wasting away is a, it's a multi-layered uh, Greek word. It's, it can mean a number of things. And the things it can mean can be to decay with age, to be capsized, to be overturned, or to be consumed and to be wiped out. And so while Paul has talked, I think, earlier in the letter about generally his suffering as a minister of the gospel from persecution, here he seems in this passage to be enlarging his view to talk about all physical suffering in his life and in the life of believers. And Paul seems to be acknowledging there is a visible reality to this physical world which Christians are not immune from. And the reality is, we are wasting away. We don't like to admit it, do we? But there is, isn't there, 
an unstoppable entropy to our physical world and to our physical bodies. How do you feel it if you don't frequent jump evolution every weekend? Our bodies are wasting away, aren't they, with the unstoppable march of time? Circumstances come into our lives which threaten to capsize us or consume us. And yet, Paul says, in a world where we are wasting away, we do not lose heart. And what is the reason that he gives for that in the second part of that verse? The reason is, for the Christian, the visible reality of wasting away is not the full story. What does he say, verse 17? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Just let those verses sink in for a moment. Do you notice the contrast that he makes? He says, yes, there is an outer wasting away going on, but there is an inner renewal taking place for the Christian. He says, yes, there is a light affliction but it is preparing a heavy weight of glory he says there are things which are physically seen yes but there are things that are unseen which are just as real there are things that are temporary and present but there are things that are eternal and are to come do you notice paul doesn't say our wasting away in this life isn't real he doesn't say it's not painful But, he says, the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection for us that it secures has totally transformed the reality of any struggle or hardship that you might face. I'm quite aware this morning, um, and I was aware as I was preparing this, that I don't feel like I have much authority to speak from personal experience about real suffering. We all suffer in various ways, don't we? But I don't want to be glib this morning by referring to things like jump evolution and pulling a muscle on trampolines. I know there will be people here this morning who know the reality of suffering and sickness and death much more acutely than I can claim to so far in my life. There are people in this room, there are people in our lives who will know the pain of struggling seriously with illness as bodies degrade with mental illness, with depression, as minds fail, with loneliness and loss, as loved ones pass away. We struggle in all kinds of ways, don't we? And I know that we will be this morning with worry, anxiety, and heartache. And yet, because Paul says with confidence, I think I can say with confidence... The first thing we need this morning, whatever the struggles that we endure and experience, the first thing we need is perspective. Because Paul says, even in affliction, there is potential for renewal and refreshment if we look to the unseen reality of what it's achieving. Paul says your affliction, however real, is momentary, is fleeting, is insubstantial when you compare it 
to the weightiness of what it's achieving for you in terms of resurrection life. It's worth saying at that point, isn't it? Um, This is not all the Bible has to say about suffering. We don't get answers here as to why specific people suffer specific things. But what is clear in, in this passage, and this is the story, this is the theme or one of them of the whole Bible when it comes to suffering and hardship, is that according to Paul, affliction and hardship is not evidence of the Lord's abandonment in our lives. Despite the fact that that's so often where we go, isn't it? Paul doesn't deny suffering, but neither does he embrace suffering as being the way things should be. What he does say is there is deep potential for the Christian in the midst of suffering. Potential for renewal and refreshment. So, he says, we do not lose heart. In fact, I think he's saying... When affliction or hardship or suffering or pain come into our lives, we actually have a choice, something we can actively do in terms of facing it. And the choice is to look to the visible appearance of what is going on or to focus on the unseen reality of what it's achieving. Let me try and illustrate that. Um, Imagine a pregnant lady. There is a visible reality she is confronted with, isn't there? Which, at some time, some points, is often difficult in those nine months. She feels rough. She puts on weight, doesn't she? She probably loses her figure. She grows tired. She feels sick. And if she only has eyes for the visible reality of what's going on, she might either despair because she's losing all the things that she might think are valuable, or she might fight back. She might seek to change her circumstances through brute force. She might think, well, I better exercise more. I better cut down on the carbs. Maybe I should start popping pills to ease this nausea. But of course, that's madness, isn't it? Because even though there is a visible seen reality, there is actually an unseen and more substantial reality going on. She's growing a baby. And so fixing her eyes on the unseen reality renews and sustains her because difficult though her pregnancy might be, it's temporary and light compared to what she is looking forward to in the long run. And isn't that often how we tend to deal with suffering and hardship in our lives? Be it illness, be it age, be it circumstance, be it, as Paul um, is saying, persecution, We either despair because we we fear we're losing all the things that are actually valuable or through brute force we desire to change our circumstances, whatever the cost. Paul says, no, in trouble, look to the unseen reality of resurrection life. The real reality is that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory. That far outweighs them all. He says, they're not really even worth comparing to what your troubles are achieving for you in the long run. He says, look to the unseen reality of resurrection life. But as you do, secondly, he says, long for the glory of resurrection life. This is chapter 5 now, verses 1 to 5. 
If we're going to look to the unseen reality of resurrection hope, we need to know, don't we, what is this weighty eternal glory that Paul is talking about in this passage? And in in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, Paul uses three physical images to help us understand that. And the images are tents, clothes, and eating. Incidentally, three of my favorite things. And while so far we've seen the contrast between the visible and the invisible, now I think with these images we're supposed to see the continuity between what is seen and unseen. Look at at verse 1, chapter 5. Paul says, Now we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And there's some ambiguity here about whether Paul is referring to um, heaven in general, our heavenly home, or whether he's referring to something more specific, um, our resurrection bodies. I think for two reasons he's referring to our resurrection bodies. Firstly, in the Bible, tent is often an illustration of the human frame. And secondly, in the context, Paul is talking about physical sufferings that he endures in his body. That it seems to be where the passage is going to go as well, as we'll see in a minute. And tent, I think, is a useful illustration for what Paul is trying to tell us here. Because if you think about it, a tent is a temporary, lightweight version of a home, isn't it? It looks a bit like a house too, if you buy one of those kind of um, apexed ones. But of course, a tent is not substantial, is it? It's not permanent. And however much you love camping, most of us, I imagine, enjoy coming home, don't we, to a solid, immovable structure, a house. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity. And then he goes on, verse 4. He says, it's a bit like wearing clothes. He says, we are wearing clothes of sorts. And he says, we do not wish to be unclothed in the future, i.e., we do not wish to be released from a physical existence. Rather, he says, we long for the ultimate clothing of our heavenly tent. Do you see what Paul is saying? Do you see why this is important? While there is an element of homeliness now in our current material state, our bodies, it's a pale shadow of the permanence, the security, the the glory of the bodily existence that God is preparing for us. And that is incredibly important to understand about what our future resurrection glory is going to look like. In the context, I think Paul is... He's combating um, a kind of Gnostic theology that would have said our inner spiritual nature is holy, but our outward physical body is, is dirty and to be done away with. But you see, biblical Christianity and Paul in this passage will have none of that kind of dualism in terms of who we are as people. Because the escape that Paul is longing for in the future, his future resurrection glory, is not an escape from physical existence. It is a longing for that fulfilled, full enlargement of which this physical reality is a shadow of. In fact, he says, far from causing us to despise a physical existence, our present sufferings in the body cause us to groan and long for that future. And that is an amazing thought, I think, and worth pausing over. Our future resurrection is a bodily, physical existence. In fact, more physical, more real, more experiential 
then any of the current things we enjoy in this body, in this physical world, in a world in which all the good things we love, and as Paul is saying, all the good things that we lose, are actually just a pale shadow of the reality that's being prepared for us. I can't resist um, reading a quote from C.S. Lewis in um, one of his stories of Narnia, where he's actually talking about the physical new creation, but in the Bible that is always bound up with our physical recreations as people, where I think he puts this brilliantly in terms of the continuity and discontinuity between our physical existence now and the future glory we're looking for. In describing the new Narnia at the end of the last battle, he says this, the new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was actually the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling the best. I have come home at last, he said. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Do you see what he's saying? All our physical experiences in the body, whether painful, as Paul is talking about, or joyful, like we do often experience in God's mercy every single day, all of them are dripping with significance because they are opportunities both to be thankful and to long for the future that God is preparing for us. The prospect of a home, the prospect of being fully clothed, And more importantly, Paul says, verse 4, there is even continuity in the prospect of death being swallowed up by life, verse 4. Do you see the substance of what this weighty reality is that, that the Lord is preparing for us? Resurrection life. It's not that we will be compensated for what we are enduring. It's much more profound than that. Did you notice? Even death itself, Paul says... Death, seemingly the final word on our physical humanity before we rot and decay and return to the dust, even death itself, Paul says, is not replaced by life. It's not compensated for by life. Death will be swallowed up by resurrection life. What happens when you swallow something? Well, when you swallow something, the thing you're eating is totally consumed, isn't it? And it disappears. But as a result, you get bigger. Death, Paul says, is not replaced by life. It's not compensated for by life. It is swallowed up by life. And the hardest thing um, about difficulties, or one of the hardest things about suffering, about affliction, is actually the fear that it could be for nothing, isn't it? that it could be meaningless, that it's a wasted experience. But the God who we meet in Jesus, Paul is saying, doesn't just put up with evil and suffering in his world and in our lives. In the fullness of time, he swallows it up. That's something, isn't it? Don't mishear me again. He's not saying that God is the author of evil. He's not saying that God endorses evil or suffering in his world. 
but neither does he tolerate it. In his infinite power, he is somehow able to engulf it, swallow it up, and enlarge it so that our future glory will be more weighty as a result of all the things that we've been through. Do you see why this matters so much to to why Paul doesn't lose heart in the face of a life that is a disaster zone? See, if your reason for living is comfort and security and physical health and well-being, if that's the thing that you are living for, then you will spend your life in an endless struggle to preserve those things at any cost. But no matter how much money or time or energy you throw at those things, in the end, sickness and suffering, disease and death will catch up to you, and when they do, they will destroy you because they will destroy your whole reason for existing. But Paul says, if you build your life on the person of Jesus, the man whose resurrection is the guarantee that this physical life is not all there is, then in the final reckoning, you will not be compensated for all your losses, all your disappointments. In the final reckoning, sickness and suffering, disease and death, will actually only serve your eternal joy. Dostoevsky um, puts it brilliantly in uh, one of his books, The Brothers Karamazov, which I can't claim to have read all the way through. Um, But uh, there is a quote in here which I think sums this up brilliantly. When a character, Alaysha, is defending the Christian worldview, and he says this, He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up. That in the world finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass, it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, and for the blood that they've shed. That it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify everything that has happened. Paul says we don't lose heart in the face of suffering. We look to the unseen reality of resurrection life. We long for the glory of resurrection life. And finally, he says, we therefore live to please the one who secures our resurrection life. Look down with me at verses 6 to 10, the end of this little section that we've got. Notice, uh, Paul summarizes again that he is confident And he says also that despite not being with the Lord physically, he walks by faith and not by sight. That familiar sort of quotable verse. But do we see in the context exactly what he's meaning? He's not saying that Christian faith is blind faith, kind of screwing up your eyes and desperately trying to believe something that's unbelievable. No, walking by faith and not by sight is what he's already said in this passage, isn't it? He trusts the not yet visible, not simply the now visible. And then notice the application that he makes, verses 9 to 10. He says, so, we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body. In some ways, it's quite a sobering end to our passage, isn't it? And we need to chew on it a little bit. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due to him. 
for the things done while in the body. Now, we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking here that this is somehow undermining the confidence that Paul has in the gospel. That would make absolutely no sense in terms of Paul's theology of what we are saved by. We are not saved through what we do. We are saved as Christians simply through trusting in what Jesus does for us. That is the confidence we have in the final reckoning when we will stand before the Lord. The New Testament is clear. If we accept Jesus, we can have total confidence that he will welcome us when we stand before him. But we mustn't miss at the same time the challenge in Paul's application. Because while we might not stand before Christ for condemnation at the final day, the Bible is clear we will stand before him for evaluation. Paul is saying the reality of the resurrection means what you do now in your body matters. And it matters eternally. See, we mustn't fall into the trap of being more spiritual than the Bible, must we? Of believing that there are some parts of our lives which please the Lord and which he cares about, and there are other parts of our lives which are kind of just neutral. There is no sacred, secular divide for the Christian. Jesus doesn't just care about our services and our sermons. He doesn't just value our quiet times or our prayer meetings. Of course, he does value those things. But Paul says, everything you do in your body is an opportunity to please him. Because the resurrection, the future hope, gives its significance. Do we see? Sexual purity matters in your body. Self-control with how you live, with what you eat, with what you drink, it matters. And it's an opportunity to please Jesus. What you say, the way you use your words, matters. How you do your work on Monday morning matters. What you do with your free time matters. What you do with your money, do you see how it works? Paul is saying, we live to please the one who secures our resurrection hope because he is pleased with living for him in your body. And more than that, as we come into land, we remember the context, don't we, of everything that Paul is saying about this suffering that he perseveres through. Because Paul is actually, isn't he, in this passage, he's reminding us why he confidently spends himself, even in suffering, to please the Lord. As Paul ministers the gospel, as he travels around, as he's shipwrecked, as he's beaten, as he, as he gives the gospel of life to people, and as it decreases physically his glory in his body, he knows that he is making an investment in an account which is eternally secure and, and which will yield a reward, a return beyond anything that he can imagine. This is the pattern of New Testament Christianity. Trial to triumph, suffering to glory, death to life. And the reason that's the pattern is because this is the pattern of the one on whom New Testament Christianity is built, isn't it? We are following the pattern of the one who ultimately suffered and died, whose earthly tent was completely destroyed, capsized, consumed. The one who, in the ultimate sense, wasted away on our behalf, but whose death, like a seed falling to the ground, 
brought life. That's quite something, isn't it, when we think about what it means and the implications for what it might mean for us to live pleasing the Lord. We're in conquer season, aren't we? And in conquer season, one of the things you can do is you can gather a conquer and you can take it and you can do all kinds of things to it. You can bake it. You can pickle it. Um, In all kinds of ways, you can try and preserve it, can't you? And you will succeed probably in making it hard and resilient And you could put it on a string, and for a short time, it will be able to withstand all kinds of knocks and bumps, and it will stay exactly the same. Or you can take that conquer, and you can give it over to the ground, plant it. And it will soften, and it will split, and its life as a conquer will ebb away. But in the dying of that seed is immeasurable potential, isn't there? to populate a forest with chestnut trees. Paul is saying life in this world is often a life of suffering, and life following Jesus doesn't remove that reality. In fact, in many cases, it seems to heighten it. And living to please Jesus, as he says here we should, can cost you your reputation, your money, your career in some instances, In some parts of the world, we know it will cost you your health, even your life. But if you look at the cost of honouring Jesus, and so you think, no, I will keep myself safe and secure, risk-free, wrapped up in my comfortable bodily existence now, then can I say you will never know the power that God could unleash in you and through you. If Paul is right, then living to please the one who secures our resurrection life has unlimited power to change our lives and the lives of others. He says look, he says long, and he says live. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a brilliant essay um, called The Weight of Glory, which he based in part on one of the verses in this passage. And he put it like this when he talked about the potential that there is in us and through us to change our lives and to change the lives of others if we recognize that this is the pattern that we follow. He said this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to today, one day, could be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else, a horror, such as you now meet, if at all, in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of those destinations. And it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, with the awe and circumspection proper to them, them, that we should conduct all our dealings with each other, all our friendships, all our loves, all play, all politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. How does Paul keep going in the face of a life that is a disaster zone? He looks to the unseen reality of resurrection life. He longs for his future glory in resurrection life. 
And therefore, he lives for the one who secures his resurrection life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we marvel this morning at your infinite wisdom. As we see in this passage, a perspective on our struggles. A perspective on living in a world where we are wasting away. And so we thank you afresh for the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning. The one who endured the ultimate wasting away we deserved so that we could have this future hope of resurrection. And we simply pray that you would help us to look to this hope when hardships tempt us to despair. We pray that you would help us to long for that future, that weighty glory that you're preparing for us. And we pray that you would help us to live wholeheartedly for you, even when life is hard. In Jesus' name, amen.